So I came across a video this past week that perfectly illustrated what happens when things kind of get out of hand. And I thought I would show it to you this morning. Watch this. Well, that kind of escalated a little quickly, wouldn't you say? I mean, I know that garbage truck drivers, they get really frustrated when you put square boxes in round trash cans. And that is a perfect exa example of what happens uh, when things just kind of get a little bit out of hand. Uh, maybe you can relate. I certainly can relate when things in my life kind of start off small and just es escalate really quickly. Uh, when I first started out in ministry, I was a youth pastor at a church in California and was invited to go on a ski trip uh, with a local Christian school. I was a, it was a blast. We hired a, uh, a big tour bus and we drove up to Lake Tahoe. We were going to spend some time at Mammoth and, and uh, Heavenly. It was going to be a fantastic week. Uh, I was a little young and inexperienced and a little bit uh, still crazy in my thinking. Uh, so when we got to the first hotel that we uh, were going to stay at, some of the students decided that they were going to start playing pranks on the other students in other rooms. So they would go to the, their door and they would knock on the door and they would run away and they would open the door and no one would be there. They would do this over and over again and they started escalating a little bit of the pranks. Well, me trying to get in and be the cool guy uh, with this new group of students, I thought, well, I'm gonna pull a prank with them. So I got on the phone, called to another one of our rooms and told them, hey, you need to evacuate the hotel. It is on fire, leave now. And then I hung up the phone. Well, that room decided that they were going to call a leader in another room and check to make sure. So they called the other room, told the leader that the hotel was on fire, they needed to get out. That leader decided to call the front desk. The front desk called the manager and said, is the hotel on fire? Well, the manager called the person who was in charge of our group, who just happened to be the elder, one of the elders at the church that I was pastoring at. And so we had a, a nice little conversation uh, after that moment, and I felt so humiliated. Uh, they were about ready to evacuate the entire hotel as a result of that little prank call. I thought it was just meaningless and it would be just really fun. I did not realize how quickly things would escalate and how quickly my job was on the line. So it was a great trip after that. That was just a moment in time that I wish I could uh, relive and do things a little bit differently than I had. Maybe you can relate. Do you have a moment when things just kind of took a turn and got a little bit heated or more intense than you had anticipated? I think we all have those moments in our lives. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. You have a child who wants a toy of another child and they ask for it politely at first and then things escalate out of hand before you know it, there's a fight on your hands and you don't know who started it, what's happening or what it's even about. Maybe you are annoyed by something your spouse does and it starts off really small and it starts to escalate. Maybe you're at work and there are just some work pressures that you have that are starting to build up and the pressure is starting to mount and things are escalating in there. Each of us have moments in our lives where we can see things starting to escalate. And what seems to start off as a very simple conflict ends up becoming far greater, much more intense, much more aggressive. In fact, I would wonder um, how many people are incarcerated today because what started as a simple conflict escalated so quickly that they started doing something or committed a crime in the heat of the moment and found themselves in jail. Here's the thing though, you can trace back conflict throughout every generation in every part of the world, throughout every period of history. 
And it all goes back to one family at the very beginning of time. In fact, you can trace all interpersonal conflict back to one family. It's just actually two brothers. You may have heard of them, Cain and Abel. They were the ones who started it all. Why do I fight with my siblings? Cain and Abel. Why can't I get along with my spouse? Cain and Abel. Why do I have such problems at work? Cain and Abel. Why is it that nobody else seems to understand my point of view, my worldview? Why do I always feel like I'm in conflict with those who are different and think differently than I do? It's because of Cain and Abel. Why is Russia attacking Ukraine? Because of Cain and Abel. Why do we have agencies such as the police or state police or the FBI or U.S. Marshals or the sheriff? Because of Cain and Abel. All conflict that has ever started in this world can be traced back to Cain and Abel. The story of Cain and Abel is not just foundational in history. It's iconic. It is universally known. It's amazing the impact that this story has in this world, just in our Western world. I don't know if you know this, but Bruce Springsteen wrote his song, Adam Raised to Cain, as a result of this story. It describes his fractured relationship with his father, William Shakespeare wrote the play Hamlet, which describes the prince of Denmark who is seeking revenge on his uncle who committed adultery with his mother and murdered his father. And it was all traced back to the story of Abel being killed. You can find more uh, references like this. John Steinbeck wrote his classic novel, East of Eden, as a retelling of the story of Cain and Abel in a very modern context. In fact, it was in our old backyard back in California. Thomas Hardy, uh, he used these themes to write his incredible novels. You may have heard of them, Far From the Maddening Crowd or The Mayor of Casterbridge. Uh, Stephen Dobbins, he wrote this incredible long story. It's a poem that really... uh, thinks deeply about the excuses that people make, especially Cain, after they have died. You can look at a lot of paintings in our world and throughout history, you can see Cain and Abel being depicted in incredible ways by artists such as Titian and uh, Tintorello back in the 1500s. Even Jan and Hubert van Eyck, they were in the 1400s. They carved out a depiction of Cain and Abel. Then you get to Peter Paul Rubens in the 1600s and William Blake in the 1800s. And even contemporarily in 1960, uh, Mark Shagel, he wrote or he painted this painting depicting Cain and Abel back in 1960. In spite of all these things, we know that Cain and Abel is such a big story. We know that it's foundational to all of our history. It is so universally known, in fact, so much so that we have the danger of making it so routine or so passe that we forget that there's a deeper meaning to the story. It's easy for us to trivialize the story and make it all about morals. Obviously, Killing a brother is wrong. We don't need the Bible to show that to us. That is an unchallenged norm in society. But what we don't always see in passages like this is that there's so much more than just, hey, don't be like Cain. Don't kill your brother. There's something greater at play, something far more important going on here. You see, what's taking place in this story is not just something about murder or something about morality. It's a story about God and who he is and what he's like. It's a story about our world and why it's in the condition that it's in today. It's our story, why we end up in conflict so much in our lives. 
But really, what is most important is it is a story that is going to tell us that the cycle of sin that brings conflict and death is resolved by a compassionate God through the cross of Christ. That's what we're going to discover today. That's the big idea. If you get nothing else from today, this is most important. What you see in this passage is that the cycle of sin that brings conflict and death is resolved by a compassionate God through the cross of Christ. That is so important for us to understand. So today, we're going to go through uh, this passage. I'm going to talk to you about the story that's taking place. Then we're going to look at some of the steps to get out of conflict. Also look at some ways to support yourself or be supported through conflict. But most importantly, we want to see God displayed through this story. God, we come to you knowing that we can't understand a single thing of what we're about to read if it wasn't for you, working to open our minds and our eyes to see it. So we pray that you would do that. Help us to understand you far better than when we came here today. Help us to be more in awe of who you are. May it change the way that we live. May it help us in moments of conflict, and may we reflect you in the way that we live. We pray all this in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible, you can find yourself to Genesis chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today. I'm going to read the first 16 verses, and uh, we'll dive in. This is what the narrator Moses says. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. First thing that you're going to see in here is the story of conflict. And how did this all get started? The foundation of conflict. Right from the very beginning of the story, we are thrust into this scene. 
In fact, there's not a whole lot going on. It, the narrator, Moses, he's trying to move us so quickly into what's taking place that he doesn't even take time to develop the story a whole lot. We don't get a whole lot of background going on about the family. We don't find a whole lot more about Adam and Eve. All we have is they left the garden and it says Adam knew his wife and she gave birth to Cain. Well, hold on a second. Like, didn't she have any other children? Did she have daughters before Cain and Abel? How long were they alive before they actually had kids? How many years went by? Is, are Cain and Abel, uh, are they twins? Do they, are they separated by a year or more? I mean, what has taken place in this passage? We don't know anything. We don't know what God instituted for them to do, why they were having the professions that they had. We don't know anything about the worship that he had set for them to do, all we know is that Eve gave birth to Cain first. Eve thought, hey, this is God's plan. This is what God is going to do. He's promised someone who's going to come and bring everything back to what it's supposed to be like. So when she said, I've received Cain, I've received, I've acquired, that's what Cain means, acquired, I've gotten from the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Or when she gave birth to Abel, Abel just means vanity or, or nothingness. What in the world? I mean, what does that mean about Abel? Is it prophetic saying that Abel is not going to have a really, really long life? We don't know any of those details. In fact, the author here doesn't even seem to care about him. What he cares about is what's going to take place next. All the biographical information we get is in two verses, and it's not very much. Instead, all we get is trajectory into the passage. Passage says that uh, Abel was a shepherd. He is a keeper of the flock. That was his profession. And it says that Cain was a tiller or a worker of the ground. That's all we know about those two guys. We don't know their hair color, eye color. We don't know how tall they were. We don't know how old they were when this was taking place. We just know that this is what they did. This is the foundation of the conflict. All we get from this is what Moses says next. And he says, in the course of time, we don't know how long, both of them came to offer a sacrifice to God. And that's where everything starts. Verse 3 says, abruptly, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of its fat portions. These verses, they set the scene. They get us into the plot. And what we see, first of all, is that worshiping God is just presumed. That's just what they did. There wasn't any kind of case to say this is what they had been doing or this is what God told them to do. It was just this was worship. And both brothers, they didn't do anything different. They just did what came natural to them. Abel took care of sheep. He brought a sheep to give to God. Cain worked the ground. He brought stuff that he grew from the ground to God. There's nothing indicating in this passage anything else that was going on except for that. In fact, a lot of commentators, and even I used to, to hold to that, that, that there must be something here that God must have instituted some blood sacrifice and Cain wasn't doing it. Well, that's not in the passage. That's not what's taking place here. All it was simply saying is that these two brothers brought something to God and these sacrifices, these offerings were as a gratitude offering thanking God for all he had given to them because of him. They had anything. All that they had was from him. There's nothing indicating that these offerings were taking away their sin or restoring a relationship with God. It was just praising him for who he was and a desire to gain his favor and his blessing. 
But at the end of verse 4 and into verse 5, things take a quick and big turn. It says, And the Lord God had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Very curious. Why, why would God have regard, or why would he like one person's offering over the other? It was something that they both gave from what they were able to do. I mean, is it because God prefers cowboys more than farmers? Not likely, although it's close. Uh, is it because animal sacrifices are better than vegetable sacrifices? Well, once you get into the law, you'll realize that both of them were very important. So one couldn't be elevated above the other for the most part. Is it just because it's God's prerogative? He can do whatever he wants. So God is just being God, and he decides, hey, I like Abel's sacrifice, and I don't like Cain's. Well, while God can do whatever he desires because he's God, I don't think that's what's taking place in the passage here. Is it because they had different motives for giving their sacrifice? I think that's a little bit of of the picture. That's part of it. But reality, why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? The reason that they were both not equally accepted by God is found in the way that Abel gave thanks. His offering. His offering came from the depths of his heart, and it showed up in what he gave. What did it say that Abel gave to God? It was very specific. It said, Abel gave to God from the firstborn, from the fatlings. What Abel did is he looked at all of his sheep, and he says, I need to find the best one to give to God. Not the leftovers, not the ones that I, I, I'm not going to use those for, for wool or for anything else. Those are just the, the scraggly ones. No, he found the absolute best sheep he could find, and he brought that to the Lord as an offering of thanks. But what does it say about what Cain offered? It said Cain just offered some of the fruit of the land. It doesn't say the first fruits. It doesn't say the best part of the crops. It just said some. What it's indicating is that he just grabbed something that he could take to God to appease him, to make sure that things were just kind of on a right level with God. Nothing fancy, nothing great, just, hey, just want to make sure we're cool, big guy. That was his approach. That was his attitude. Abel, though, had a totally different mindset and attitude. See, the essence of the sacrifice was not in the presentation of the gift to God, but it was intended to display the dedication of their heart to God. That's what God was looking at, their heart, their disposition of what was going on inside. Why are you coming to give thanks to me? Why are you bringing me this offering? I could care less about what the offering is. Show me why you're coming to me. That's what's most important to me. It's less about the specifics. Some commentators say that the word that says regard is similar to the word consumed or fire. And it could be that they both brought their offerings and God sent fire and burned up Abel's, but didn't burn up Cain's. But either way, somehow it was communicated that God said, Abel, I accept your offering. Cain, I've rejected yours. (sighs) Right away, Cain's face fell. His countenance. You you know what it's talking about. Like when you... When you see something happen, you get slighted, or someone disrespects you, or something gets something that you wanted or deserved. 
and then all of a sudden you can feel it in your face. It starts to, to fall. And that's what's taking place here. Cain's countenance fell. His face fell. But it wasn't falling against God. It was falling against the person that God chose instead. It didn't say that Cain got very angry at God. Cain got very jealous over his brother. That is very important to see. In this moment, jealousy is raising its big, ugly, green-eyed head. And it was about to prove that greed, jealousy is cruel as the grave. You know, it really made me think when I was looking at this passage, what are my reactions when something like this happens? When something else goes, something I want goes to someone else, or I feel slighted in some way. I was more convicted when I saw on social media uh, a little while ago, a post from one of our newest members who is capturing her daughter who was at a dance competition. And in that competition, her fellow dance partner, someone in her own troupe, competing along with her, won first place. And instead of being angry or upset, she gave her the biggest hug. And in that picture, you could see absolute joy and celebration. She had no feelings of jealousy or animosity, just pure, unadulterated joy. That is not the case for most of us, is it, when things like that happen? When we feel slighted in some way, that is not the reaction that we have. Have you ever struggled with being genuinely happy for someone else? Have you used other people as benchmarks to see how you can be better? I feel like that's how it is uh, a lot for my, my own life. I mentioned in my last message that I had a friend named Tim who got the job that I desired in college as a student athletic trainer. And that started off a whole bunch of, of interesting things. We ended up becoming the best of friends. But in that moment when he got chosen, I made it my ambition in that moment to be the best student athletic trainer that they could ever have. I wanted to prove that they had made the wrong choice in choosing Tim over me. So I worked harder than anyone else to be the best I could possibly be as a student athletic trainer. I ended up becoming that, but it, what difference did it make in my life? What it exposes is that I have jealousy and envy in comparison. That was my reaction. I feel like that's a lot of our reactions. How common is it for us to get angry at the person who gets or achieves or becomes what we wanted? How often do we allow envy and jealousy and rivalry and competition and sometimes even wars dominate our lives in the moments we feel rejected. That all started here in this story. And it's very interesting when you look at the story, the characteristics that Cain exhibited. What was it like in these conflicts, in this conflict in particular, that shows the same way in every conflict that we have? It says Cain was very angry. Cain was very angry. By the way, just on a side note, this coupling, very angry, is used later on in the Bible of people just before they committed homicidal acts. Same pair of words. It's interesting, but it's showing the intensity of Cain's passion. Cain is angry. And what God is trying to do is say, hey, Cain, listen. Hey, I can see it all over your face. You are allowing evil thoughts and intentions to come into your mind, and it's changing everything. 
So listen, Cain, if you aren't careful, if you do well, if you change your attitude, change your mind, change your heart, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. You'll be restored. You'll be accepted. But if you don't, sin is lying. It's crouching at your door. Man, that is an incredible image. You must rule over it. Sin is personified in this moment as a wild beast lurking at the door of the human heart and it's eagerly desiring to devour its soul. Listen, Cain, you need to rule over this rage and jealousy and envy because if you don't, it is going to consume you like a wild animal. It is going to take your life. What is happening here is the same thing that happens every single time that we engage in conflict in our lives. We're no different than Cain. Maybe in the outflow, but not in this beginning part of conflict. The same thing happens when we get really angry or really sad in a situation We get the raging sea of emotions and thoughts and possible actions. They come flooding into our mind, and it pushes us to do something about the way that we're feeling. I love how Ken Sandy puts it. Ken Sandy, he wrote a book called The Peacemaker, and if you've never read it or seen it, I would encourage you to get it. The Peacemaker, inside of this, Ken Sandy, he gives us a progression, a downward spiral of four different things that happen every time we are in conflict. The first thing is that we have a desire. I want. I want. There's something that I want in some capacity or another. And that desire, I want, turns into a demand saying, well, I want it, so therefore I must have it. Whatever that thing is, I must have it. And if that is not meant, if you don't get what you are desiring, it goes even further into judgment, where you start judging the person or people that are refusing to give it to you. You're not. You always. You should. You start judging them for what they are not providing for you that you want, that you are demanding. And after you start judging that person, it's a quick jump down the spiral to punishing them. Saying, because you didn't give me this, therefore you must suffer. Whether that's personally or emotionally or possibly spiritually or even physically, you must suffer because you're not giving me what I need. This pattern comes through in every single relationship that we have. You see it within our family. I want respect in my family. And therefore, I demand this respect in my family. And if I'm not getting this respect in my family, I'm going to say, why don't you respect me? Why don't you give me the respect that I deserve? Look at all that I do for this family. You need to respect me. And if it's not coming, my response is then going to be, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to say things that are going to hurt you. I'm going to withhold things that are going to hurt you. I'm going to do something to show you that I am upset and angry that I'm not getting what I want. This happens all the time with with our siblings. If our sibling has something that we want, we say, I want that. I need that. I must have that. And if we don't get it, then we start 
judging our sibling. You're always like that. You are such a mean sibling. You are such a terrible brother or sister. You are always like this. You ne- and it, go- it goes on. And then you start to punish them. When you're younger, it's coming with like slaps or pinches. But when it gets older, it's like brawls. It is not good, but it goes into punishment. If we go into work, if we're not getting the promotion that we desire or the acknowledgement of the work that we are doing, that's what we desire. Then it turns into, man, I need to have that. I must have that acknowledgement, that promotion. I need to have it. And when we're not getting it, we start judging that company or the employer or our manager or, or anyone, our coworkers. And then we start punishing them, either by withholding things or, or gossiping about them, finding something to punish them. It goes into our school environments where our teachers, oh, they, I, I need to have a good grade. I need to uh, be treated in this way. And if it's not happening, they start to judge them and then punish them in some way. It happens in our friendships. It happens in our relationships. It happens in our politics. When we want something to take place in our politics and it doesn't happen, we start demanding it. Then we start judging the other side for not giving us what we desire. And we start punishing in some way. It happens with war all the time. It happens in fights with ethnicities. It happens in our finances. It happens in our identity. It happens in our government. It happens in our position, in our possessions, in our community, in our culture. You can see where this is going in every single way. You can apply the same downward spiral, even with God. God, I want you to acknowledge who I am. I want you to acknowledge what I want to do. Don't tell me that I can't do this because this is my desire. So therefore you must let me do this. When God doesn't come through and say that, it's okay then we start judging God as being cruel and mean and and a big ogre and bigoted and all the other words that we can think of as who we think God should be and we punish him in some way saying, well, if that's who you're going to be, I'm not going to follow you. The same downward spiral goes through in every single area of our lives. It happened at the very beginning with Cain, the same pattern that he had ravages each and every one of us in every relationship that we have. This is the dark side of desire. This is a perverted sense of desire. For both Cain and for us today, we have the same words that God is speaking. Be careful. You're in conflict right now. There's a desire that you have that's causing you to demand and then judge and punish. Listen, sin is lurking at your door like a famished lion ready to come and destroy your life and the lives of those you're in conflict with. You must rule over it or it will destroy you. This is what James referred to. He says, this is nothing new. James, I feel like, is commenting on this passage in Genesis throughout his entire letter. Inside of it, he tells us in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, he says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Later in chapter four, he'll say the same thing. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, 
Your desires are at war within you. You desire and do not have and you murder. The same cycle is here. Do you see it? Desire leads to demands. Those demands lead to judgments and judgment leads to punishment and punishment leads to death, whether that's figuratively or reality which is what takes place in this passage. You can see where I'm going. You know the story, the consequences of the conflict. God has given Cain every single opportunity to curb the rage, to soften his countenance, to change his attitude in his heart. He says, hey, listen, Cain, if you just change, if you just change, everything will be fine. If you change your attitude and your heart, it will be fine because, listen, I care more about your heart than the offering that you're giving to me. I want to know that you love me. I want to know that you prioritize me. I want to know that you worship me. He's given him every opportunity. But then verse 8 goes on to say, but then Cain said to Abel, some uh, translations that you may have uh, may say, let's go out in the field. Some commentators say that part was left out, but it should be in there. Uh, some people say that the author purposely left it out to kind of push us forward. Either way, it thrusts us right into the scene. And Cain said to Abel, what, what, what's going on? The next thing we hear, then Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Killed him. It's over. Nothing could be said or done. Waiting sin has had its dangerous way with Cain Cain could not rule that sin. Sin was ruling him. You know, recently I was watching a true crime drama, uh, and I was fascinated because there's these, these police officers who had been working in various divisions, and they said out of all the crimes that they had experienced, that they had worked on, the ones that were the hardest for them to ever get over or to see were crimes that were committed against another person in their family. They shared a story that was just devastating of a family hurting each other. That's so interesting to me why a family would do that because isn't that the case? Like families shouldn't do that. Families shouldn't rise up against each other. Families shouldn't hurt each other. But if you, if you ever read this book, it's a very fascinating book called Bloodthirst by Russell Jacoby. And he goes through a whole, the whole history of mankind, and he shows that contrary to fearing uh, aggression or pain or fight or war from others, it usually comes from people that are closest to us. He says, you have more to fear from a spouse, an ex-spouse, or an ex-coworker than you do from anyone else. The greatest and the most venomous and egregious crimes that have been committed have been committed by family members. He said, just look at some of the assassinations and the massacres and things that took place in our world and history, and you'll see the same thing. Mohandas Gandhi was assassinated by an Indian nationalist. Anwar Sadat, he, is, or Sadat, he was the, the prime minister of Egypt. He was killed by an Egyptian Muslim. Yitzhak Rabin, he was the prime minister of, of Israel. He was killed by an Israeli Jew. Both of those guys had won the Nobel Peace Prize. If you look through history and you see in the 1930s, German Christians and German Jews could not even be distinguished as different. The only way that they could be seen as different is the yellow star on the Jewish coat. 
If you look in, in Bosnia with the Serbs and the Muslims, it's similar with the Hutu and the Tutsi in Rwanda. You can't tell them apart. They can't even tell each other apart at times. Great acts of violence come from family, from those who we know. It is surprising to me. And that is the case because that's how all this conflict got started in the first place, with the murder of Abel by his brother. In fact, Moses is quick to say, listen, he's blown away. He's shocked. Six times in these three verses, he uses the word brother because he couldn't believe that a brother would rise up against another and kill him. Everything is going south at this point. Cain's aggression is off the charts. You can see the cycle of violence getting greater. Back in Genesis chapter 3, God uses the same imagery and the same words uh, with Cain, he's like, Cain, where's your brother? In Genesis 3, he says, Adam and Eve, where are you? Rhetorical questions to try to get them to come clean. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 said, we were afraid because we heard you walk in the garden. And they started this blame game. But when God confronts Cain, instead of doing the blame game, he's like, how should I know where my brother is? Flat out denies that he killed them. He says, am I my brother's keeper? He has gotten so far removed and he's gotten so sinful, and his aggression just screams off the page. In fact, you don't get seven generations away from Cain down to Lamech, and Lamech is now taking two wives against God's plan and design, and then he kills somebody for hurting him. Then you go just a little bit further down in history, and you get to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, and it says that violence covered the earth. Every intention and thought of mankind was evil only and always. Conflict just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. But God steps in and he doesn't let Cain continue and he shifts the story just a little bit. And this is what I want to focus on for remaining time. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 10 through 16, uh, God gives his punishment to Cain. And it's almost like a mirroring thing like Cain, because you were a tiller of the ground and you brought fruit from the ground this now is going to be your punishment. Because you killed your brother and that ground now soaked up his blood, that ground will no longer produce fruit for you and you're cursed from that ground. Cain says, this is far too great of a punishment for me. What will I do? I can't farm anymore. I can't be in your presence anymore. I can't be with my family anymore. This is so great, too great for me. Cain is sent out from the presence of the Lord to pay for the sins that he has done. Conflict always brings consequences. No matter what happens in our lives, when we engage in conflict, there will always be consequences. Whether that is a relationship being broken, a marriage being broken, families being broken, work relationships being broken, people's lives being broken, property being broken. Sin leads to conflict, and conflict leads to consequences. And just in case you think, well, this is great, Joel. Uh, I don't think I'm going to kill my brother. <laughs> just, a, just an FYI. You don't have to watch out for me. I don't think that I'm going to react in violence, so don't have to worry about me. Lest you think that this passage is just talking about murder. It's talking about something so much greater. 
Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and these And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to to the guard and you will be put in prison. And truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Man. Jesus has a way of really hitting us right in the heart. This passage goes so much greater than just physical acts. Can you believe that even in this moment, in this room, that there might be some of us here who have something against a brother, whether that's literally a brother in our family or a sister in our family or someone who is in the family of God or just another person? Even in the worship of God, the juices of conflict and death can be flowing through us. What Jesus is saying is the same thing he was telling to Cain. Listen, you're coming to worship me. And yet you have this, this anger and bitterness and rage and jealousy and envy inside of you. If you change your heart, everything's going to be fine. But take care of this issue first, because if you don't, it will destroy your life. And it will take everything that you have, Every last penny. So how do we do this? How do we get out of conflict? How do we get to this moment where we say, okay, I got it. I, I can sometimes let conflict get out of hand and it controls my life and it ruins my relationships. How do I get out of this? Let me give you really briefly some steps to help you get out of this. As I said before, James is a commentary on Genesis chapter four. When you get to, to the book of James, he gives us some great tools to use when we're in conflict. James chapter 4, verse 7, he gives us this. He says, submit to God. Submit. God is in control. Listen, you've got to do this. Submit to God. Every time that we try to take charge of the conflict in our lives, we can mess things up, but we need to say, God, you have got a plan for this. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to, even if things don't, don't work out right for me, I'm going to trust that you've got this under control. Submit to God. Don't try to take it into your own hands. Number two is this. Submit, resist. It says in the very next part of that verse, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Satan and sin are trying to control you. They're trying to rise up and destroy the relationships that you have. So resist them. They're crouching at your door, ready to come in and destroy everything in your life. Resist him and he will flee from you. So submit to God. God is in control. Resist that sin and Satan that tries to control and destroy your life. And the last one is this, desist. I try to make it easy for you to remember. Submit, resist, desist. James chapter one. He gives us the great passage in verses 19 and 20. It says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Slow down, quiet down, bring it down, desist, 
slow it down. Submit to God. God, you're in control of the situation. I need to trust you. Resist the urge to do or say something that will allow sin to control and destroy my life. And then just slow down. Quiet down. Don't talk so much. Give yourself some moments to think, to pray, to let God work through you. And as you're going through the conflicts in your life, let me give you some ways to help support yourself through those because it's tough. We are all in conflict in every single area of our lives, in every relationship. So how do we do this? James goes on to say, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. The closer that you get to God, the closer that his presence can be felt, the closer that his words are to your mind and to your mouth. Draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Number two, stay humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Stay humble. Everything that we have is from God anyways. Every time we try to rise up, we just ruin things. Stay humble. Allow God to do the things that he needs to to work in every relationship. Number three, get wisdom. James chapter 1 verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom in the midst of trials and, and concerns and conflicts, ask God and God won't hold anything back. God wants to give you the wisdom to say things and to act in ways that are right. And the last one is this, to cultivate peace. James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 say, but the wisdom from above is first pure. That wisdom that we're asking from God is pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown by those who make peace. God wants you to cultivate peace. Get this wisdom. Allow it to flow in and through your life. And as you do so, peace will start to bloom in every relationship that you have. That wisdom is peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Let me close really quickly with the last part of the story. God doesn't leave everything the same. He doesn't allow things to stay as they were. God has a plan. At the end of this whole thing, it says that Adam knew his wife again, and she gave birth to another son named Seth. Seth is the line from which Jesus would come, the appointed one, the promised one would come. God is not finished. Yes, Abel was killed by Cain, but that's not the end of the story. God has a plan that is coming for the whole world where all conflict is going to be erased there. Here in this passage, when Cain was not allowed or not able to resist Satan, Jesus steps in in Matthew chapter 4 and resists Satan and is able to show you, hey, you can do this. You can get through this. You can resist the sin that comes. Cain killed Abel. He killed his own brother. But in Jesus, Jesus was killed. He died for his brothers and sisters. Hebrews 12, 24 says, uh, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's blood. Abel's blood is crying out for justice. Jesus' blood is coming down and saying, I have accomplished justice here on the cross. God's plan for conflict and death is this. No matter what we experience in this life, everything that we're going through in this life is found in 
Jesus. It is dissolved in Jesus. All the conflict, every single malignment that we have, every single time we've been slighted, every single conflict that we have, every single moment of offense that we endure is met there at the cross of Christ. Every single time that we lash out or are lashed out against, it is handled there on the cross of Christ. Right there on the cross, the wrath of God meets that injustice and the love of God extinguishes it so that we are now free to live in peace and freedom and hope. Friends, conflict is a part of this world. It's everywhere that we go and it's in everything that we do. But I'm here to tell you this, because of Jesus Christ, the cycle of sin that brings conflict and death is resolved by a compassionate God, a God who instead of killing Cain, instead of taking his life, he forgives him and sends him away. It says in Exodus chapter 34 that God is a great God, a compassionate God, full of love, abounding in grace and mercy and faithfulness, and he forgives iniquity. The compassionate God who you think is going to come and rain down justice, rains it down on Jesus instead, and he is able to forgive each and every one of us. This passage has far more to say about the wonder and beauty of who God is. So friends, listen to me. When you are in the midst of conflict, I want you to remember this, that you don't have to let anger control you anymore because you have hope through it, power to control it, and freedom from it from Jesus Christ on the cross. You don't have to let out-of-control desires control you because through those desires, you have hope through them that God has conquered them already through Christ, and you have freedom through them because of what Christ has done. You don't have to let bitterness and rage control you anymore because you have hope through them, power to control them, and freedom from them in Jesus Christ. You don't have to let jealousy or selfishness or hard-heartedness ever again rule over you because you have hope through them, power to control them, and freedom from them because of Jesus Christ. The cycle of sin that brings conflict and death is resolved by a compassionate God through the cross of Christ. God, thank you for your great love, mercy, faithfulness, giving us what we never deserved and withholding from us what we did deserve. God, when we look at the story of Cain, who should have been flung from, from you and his life should have been taken, you in your great mercy forgave him. You put a sign on him that kept him safe, that showed that even though he is being punished, you have not left him alone, that you have always seen him, that the one who spoke the worlds into existence speaks forgiveness there in the midst of chaos. God, we are so consumed by the conflicts in our lives and we know that they will destroy us if we let them, but we thank you that you have conquered them, that we do not have to fear them. We can have the freedom from them because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Give you all the glory for it. Amen.